Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD Radio News Director Will Stevenson. When we recorded last week's program, we did not know what the outcome of the state budget would be, only knowing then that a deal was in the works. The results were predictable. The budget passed in the Illinois legislature largely on party lines in a late night hour of the weekend and with members of the Republican Party displeased with the process. That's happened before, all of it. Here's part of the debate, though, in the Illinois House on the budget featuring Peoria Democrat State Representative Jahan Gordon Booth, one of the lead Democrat negotiators in the House. Fiscal year 24 budget is balanced in every sense. We should not have to choose between being from being a responsible state and being a compassionate one. We can do both. I dare say we have to do both. Our North Star in this process has been passing a balanced budget and that fiscal responsibility and that straightforward budget making guided all of the decisions that we have made and it will continue to gird this state as we look through the lens, regardless of what comes our way whether it be national economic challenges, we have positioned ourselves in an incredibly strong way because we are continuing to rebuild the fiscal house of the state of Illinois for our future. Our rainy day fund is stronger than it's been literally in decades. The additional $200 million in the pension stabilization fund on top of the $200 million that we put into that pension stabilization fund last year, significantly reduces pension liabilities for all of our constituencies. The over $100 million that we're putting, the $180 million that we're putting into the rainy day fund, ladies and gentlemen, five years ago, that was unheard of. And now here we are hopefully on the precipice of not seven, we're at eight, but we're looking for that ninth credit upgrade. And the path that we are on with this balanced budget puts us in a strong position to get yet another credit upgrade. A stronger state enables us to get the work done of building a smart, compassionate state that we all wanna live in, that we all wanna be able to pass on to our children. And by going line by line through the budget and prioritizing our spending, we have been able to commit to services that expand opportunity, that creates a brighter future for all of our families, all of our children living in all of our neighborhoods. That's why it was so important that investing in safer communities be a priority in this budget. We are making Illinois safer by investing hundreds of millions of dollars to fund community-based violence prevention all over the state of Illinois. And ensuring that those community-based providers have strong quality after-school programs for our children, youth summer jobs, and enriching opportunities that broads the horizons of our children and show them not just who they could be, but who they should be. We are giving police the resources that they need to keep our community safe with over $100 million 
in investments and training and resources to our first responders. Some of those resources look like having the ability to invest $13 million in law enforcement training, $33.6 million in law enforcement in-camera grants, $5 million to law enforcement training retention programs. These are just some of the things that we're doing to ensure that law enforcement has the supports that they need in all of our communities all over the state of Illinois. We are giving police and prosecutors the financial support they need to implement the hard-fought criminal justice reforms uh, right here in this chamber. Well, it wasn't this chamber, it was at the BOS, but through this body. Again, the work of the Healthcare and Human Service Appropriations Committee, along with the Medicaid Work Group, has done, has done a yeoman's job in terms of improving healthcare access for every Illinoisan. We are improving access to quality, affordable healthcare in underserved communities, rather that be rural Illinois or urban Illinois. We are increasing critical access all over the entire state of Illinois. We're committed to additional critical funding for safety net health providers in at-risk communities because we know that those critical access providers are oftentimes uh, the only folks who can stand in the gap and be able to provide the health care needed in many of those communities. We are modernizing reimbursement rates for caregivers and for ambulance services in small towns to help keep providers in those often underserved areas. I stated it before, I stated it, I'll state it again. I live in downstate Illinois and I know how important ambulance rates, those increases are in downstate communities, in particular those small towns. The investments that we're making in those budgets puts small towns across the entire state of Illinois in a position to be able to be able to hire the EMTs that are needed uh, to be able to have a competitive wage so that an individual doesn't have to choose working at Chick-fil-A over working uh, as an EMT. Uh, in my local community, the uh, the ambulance provider made it very clear that it wasn't just that community, but literally across the state. And we heard that at 7 a.m., seven Fridays, seven Thursdays ago about how important this was. We're strengthening our commitments to behavioral health, mental health, and addiction treatment through the rate increases for community-based health. We know how important it is for colleges and universities to get that additional mental health support. Um, through the uh, university mental health uh, program. We know how important it is for those rate increases, for addiction services, for those community-based programs. These are the kinds of things and the kinds of holistic strategies that we have to begin to take very seriously if we want to be able to combat many of the crises, rather it be addiction of alcohol, opioids, methamphetamines, etc. The strategies that we have to take with the knowledge that we have and the data that we have been able to compound requires us to have uh, a much more forward outlook on how it is we build better and stronger communities by repairing the broken individuals in our community that if we are able to wrap our arms around them, they can go back to their families and back to their communities and be the strong individuals that we know uh, that they can be. 
we're actually building a true cradle to career path for all of our young people with the historic investments in education at all levels. So whether we are talking about the Smart Start initiative that we have discussed significantly earlier, whether we are talking about the additional $350 million in the evidence-based funding formula that will go to all of our K through 12 students, whether we are talking about the $100 million in additional MAP funding that will go to every college, every, every university, every community college in this state that will create an opportunity so that when a middle class child decides that they want to go to school, because you all know, like I know, that if you have two working parents and you fill out that FAFSA form, oftentimes that child doesn't get any support. But because of the investments that we are making in this budget, we are putting a lot of middle class families in a position where they're actually going to be able to begin their collegiate experience without the overburdened debt of student loans. We're also investing an additional $100 million. So those of you that live in communities that have universities, every one of those universities stands to benefit significantly from that $100 million investment in the operations of that university. Not to mention the workforce training that is happening in many of these community colleges, opportunities like the Workforce Equity Initiative, which is now a national leader in pulling people out of poverty and putting them in head of household jobs that is literally changing the lives of not just that individual, but the entire family. These are the kinds of investments that we're making cradle to career for every Illinoisan. These are the kinds of opportunities that we can go home and talk about to our constituents if we vote aye on this legislation. Again, as we continue to ensure that every student has an access to a world-class education with the $350 million investment, I think it would be, I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the fact that over the last four years, we've also committed 1.3 billion. Let me say that again. 1.3 billion dollars in new funding for classroom education. This isn't little money, ladies and gentlemen. The reason why we have the ability to continuously make those kinds of strategic investments is because we are doing it in a sustainable way. We're coming back year over year. We're looking at our resources. We're making the tough decisions. We're making the tough calls. We're making decisions about the resources that we have and the ones that we don't. We would love, we would absolutely love to be able to give even more. But what we know is we want to ensure that we're not pulling a rug out from anybody. State Representative Jahan Gordon Booth, the lead Democrat negotiator on the state budget in the Illinois House. We'll hear from two more Peoria lawmakers, both opposed to the budget, with more Week in Review coming up. You heard from State Representative Jahan Gordon Booth of Peoria in our last segment, the lead Democrat negotiator in the Illinois House on the state budget. 
Republicans were, as you can expect, not happy with how things went. And two Peoria lawmakers wanted to be more in on the process as well, and they let their voices be heard in the final House debate. They include State Representatives Travis Weaver and Ryan Spain. The entire reason I ran for this seat is to make sure that Illinois is a place where my nieces and nephews, and hopefully my kids one day, can start a life for themselves in Illinois. Maybe it's the farm kid in me, but I love this land and I care about it, and I care about its future. But our fiscal irresponsibility straps weight to the legs of our kids before they're even starting the race of life. This budget does the exact opposite of what it claims to do. It claims to pay down debt because we're paying $450 million on the tobacco bond, but it doesn't count for at least a billion dollars masked by gimmicks. If you pay off $450 on your Visa card, but load up another $1,000 on your MasterCard, that's not progress. That's going backwards. That is strapping weights onto our kids. On pensions, the governor's taken a victory lap after putting $200 million towards our failing pensions. But it's a $300 billion problem. These numbers are too big for most people to wrap their heads around, so you've got to take off six zeros. It's like if your bank said to you, hey, you haven't been paying your mortgage. You're $300,000 in the hole. And you said back to him, I can give you 200 bucks this year. It would take 1,500 years to pay that down, assuming no interest and assuming the problem isn't getting worse, which it is. Strap on another weight. This budget claims to have cushion for unknown variables. The cushion accounts for less than 0.02% of the entire budget, and we're going into a recession. Revenue estimates are coming down, and we're counting on a 0.02% cushion to keep us from piling more debt onto our kids. Strap on another weight. We need to be investing in our kids. Instead, we're killing one of the best programs in the entire state, the Investing Kids Act. Strap on another weight. Our kids need our help and we're drowning them in our debt. They need us to throw them a life raft. Instead, we're throwing them a barbell that is this budget. Don't vote against our kids. Instead, let's put a budget together that helps our kids run their best race. I urge a no vote. Leader Spain. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, to the bill. To the bill. Uh, first, let me begin with uh, thanks and recognition uh, to the sponsor. And uh, Leader Gordon Booth, uh, this has not been an easy assignment, and let me share very genuinely my appreciation for you jumping into the fray and tackling something uh, so difficult, so complicated, and so challenging. And let me also give thanks uh, to something that came up in the executive committee earlier today, uh, because there was a discussion about something that's been uh, on the minds of many of us for years now, and it was mentioned by Leader Davidsmeyer, but uh, the notion of uh, agreements that were made several years ago as part of the uh, 2019 Capitol Bill uh, are important and should be honored. And 
I appreciate you for agreeing with that because that's something that whether it's been the governor or the speaker who have consistently pointed fingers at each other, uh, I appreciate you saying that that was something that you agreed with and I look forward uh, to how we can work on that in the future because there are a lot of very worthy things of consideration that should move forward and, and I appreciate you acknowledging that. To the budget and uh, for all of us in the House, uh, this will be the last, um, at least the last major vote that we'll be taking for this legislative session and we'll soon be then at the uh, uh, end of our time tonight and I know the hour's late but we'll uh, hear those congratulatory remarks from the legislative leaders and if you're a new member uh, you can uh, look forward to that uh, tradition where the speaker will come out and the Republican leader uh, will make comments reflecting on the session and we'll hear things uh, probably to remind us about our why or about how uh, winners do the work uh, but I think that it's important to acknowledge the work that was not done here either in this budget or in this legislative session major big-time work that was not accomplished by this General Assembly and whether it's the Investing Kids Act that has been mentioned repeatedly whether it's BIPA whether it's the tax holidays and uh, protections that uh, have been implemented in previous years that are not included in this budget there's a lot of things uh, that we didn't get the work done, unfortunately, uh, for this year. And one of the things that disappoints me within this budget is we as a legislature, as a co-equal branch of government, we are delegating such a large amount of our work to the administration and to the governor specifically. And so when I see things like a $1.5 billion transfer from GRF, to an old COVID uh, response program, it leaves me wondering what our intentions are to give so much discretionary authority to the administration. Same with one of the biggest issues that we've been talking about for many months here in the state capitol uh, within the Medicaid program. The uh, massive cost overruns within the expansion of Medicaid for undocumented individuals, undocumented immigrants, is a huge problem. And it should have been one where we could come together and think about uh, how can you control costs and how can you think about services that are important to certain people. And that's the job of the legislature, to come forward and develop solutions. Instead, we're ceding more control to the administration through a emergency rulemaking authority. And I, I don't know if many of us weren't here 10 or 12 years ago during the SMART Act. That's the last time we gave extraordinary powers to the Department of Healthcare and Family Services to make cuts within the Medicaid program. There were many issues with doing that. And certainly more recently, we can all remember very vividly the problems with emergency rulemaking that continued again and again throughout the pandemic uh, under uh, the Department of Public Health. And so here we are as a legislature ceding more of the work that we should be doing ourselves to the administration. And that's not the work that we should be doing. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention one of the things that I, I just find it absolutely crazy 
that we are going to leave this capital city after one of the largest public corruption trials with four convictions all swirling around the person that presided at this rostrum, at this dais, for 38 years, and we as a legislature are adjourning without doing anything on the topic of ethics reforms. It is said that budgets reflect our priorities. And boy, I just cannot believe it that we don't, all of us, place a priority on cleaning up the corruption that has been such a deep stain on the state of Illinois. We leave a lot of work to do here as we adjourn tonight. I hope we will do better in the future. Thank you. State Representatives Travis Weaver and Ryan Spain, also both of the Peoria area, will go from the state budget to the federal budget with more Week in Review coming up. The state budget wasn't the only spending plan wrapped up in the last week or so. The federal budget was too, at least for now. But that had some high stakes attached to it. The spending plan was approved just days before a projected default on the country's debt. So with the spending, a suspension of the country's debt ceiling also was approved. President Biden was expected to sign the measure into law over the weekend, perhaps even by the time you hear this broadcast. Peoria area Congressman Darren LaHood voted no, saying he thinks the Republicans' original plan of raising the debt ceiling coupled with spending cuts was better. Here, though, is 17th District Congressman Eric Sorensen speaking with reporters, including myself, via Zoom prior to the House vote. I wish that I was I was back at home uh, continuing the work in our in-district work period um, instead of being here uh, in the Capitol. However, there's work to be done. Um, I've heard from so many people in our district um, that have talked all about compromise from the day that I was sworn in um, to today. It's how we're finding ways to work together. And I believe that what we're going to vote on here tonight is just that. Um, this bill, certainly not perfect, um, but it does mean that we don't drive our economy off of a cliff. Um, a catastrophic default, what that would mean to the real people in our district, um, is palpable, um, you know, as veterans would lose the services that they need. Um, Social Security payments uh, would be jeopardized. Um, our uh, full faith and credit of the United States government around the world would be compromised. And we can't let that happen. And so tonight's vote allows us to move forward um, and uh, make sure that we don't go into a recession. Um, costing millions of jobs and um, also affecting retirement accounts. Um, and so I look forward to working with my colleagues on the other side of the aisle to come forth tonight and have that compromise uh, to make sure that when we come back here next week to continue the work in Congress, um, that we're doing the work for the people and we're not doing the work for one political party um, or for any uh, person that's in charge. Um, this is a good reminder that the people that vote for the bill tonight are the ones that are working for the people. So with that, I'd love to open it up to any questions that you might have on any of the specifics.
that we have to the bill narrowly passed out of rules committee uh, and is facing some opposition from House Republicans. Um, it's looking like to reach 218 tonight, there may be a sizable amount of Democratic votes that get that over the line. Uh, if that's the case, do you believe that weakens McCarthy's position as speaker? And what do you think it says about McCarthy's working relationship with House Democrats? Uh, look, I, you know, I, I, I can't speak for the leader of, of the Republican Party. Um, however, I can say um, that, um, you know, it, it takes everyone to be a good sport uh, when you're playing a, uh, uh, any tournament. Right. And, and that's what this was all about. Um, it was leadership, uh, including leader Jeffries, uh, the president and uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, to come to the table and work out a compromise. And, and I'm glad that there is a compromise. Um, but it seems that there are some extremists on the other side of the aisle um, that they want it to be their way or the highway. And, and look, um, if that was the case, then we would have veterans that lose services. Then we would have Social Security be threatened. Um, we would be threatening uh, with a recession. Um, and, and I want to make sure that we're finding the compromise to get that done. Now, as far as McCarthy's future, I think that's in the hands of, of the Republicans. Um, but look, um, I want the Speaker of the House, whomever that's going to be, from whichever party, uh, the Speaker of the House should be there to work across party lines to get the will of the people and get the work done. Uh, we'll go to Will Stevenson from WMBD. You said at the beginning that uh, this is not a perfect uh, bill. What would you like to see different about it? Um, you know, certainly. I mean, one of the things that, um, that that's harder to swallow um, are the work requirements uh, for food security. Um, you know, throughout this process, you know, I oppose those work requirements uh, for those folks that are in their 50s. Um, that are food insecure. We need to make sure that um, that they're taken care of. Um, and so I'm I am pleased here in the um, in the final days, final hours of this bill um, that you know that um, what we have is going to be phased in with time. Um, but you know what? I think in a compromise, you don't get everything that you want. Um, you know, I like I've always believed. Um, there's two ways to find compromise. Um, you can find ways to meet exactly in the middle and come to an agreement. But then there's also got to be the ability to give and take, to move back and forth. And so this is one of those things where, you know, we're not going to be able to meet in the middle for everything. We're going to have to give and take. And so for me, with food security, that's a big part of the farm bill. I'm on the Agriculture Committee, and so we are going to be looking at food security in this year's Farm Bill. And so, yeah, we're not going to get everything that we want in this package, but that means that we're going to have to work that much uh, harder uh, in the Farm Bill to make sure that we get as many Americans food secure as possible. Republicans have, have made a lot recently yeah. out of, I guess, President Biden saying earlier that he didn't really want to negotiate, at least I, I took that to mean the debt ceiling part of this, but uh, sh should this have all been ha had all been done sooner? Should President Biden had been more willing to negotiate? Do you think? I mean, look, I mean, the our country's never defaulted on our debt, um, and so you know, I think the president making that case early on uh, said we shouldn't ever get to this point. Uh, we have to understand that really what we're talking about here is is paying the credit card bill. 
that so many of us have on our kitchen counters today. Um, you know, we're making the choice tonight uh, whether the United States is going to pay the bill uh, for the things that we've already purchased, the things that were in last year's budget. The bill is coming due, and we need to make sure that we're going to pay the bill. Now, going forward, you know, much like when I get home, uh, back home to the district, and I open up that credit card bill, oh my gosh, I need to spend less. Of course we do. We need to make sure that every tax dollar that's coming in from a hardworking American is spent wisely. We need to find ways that we can cut government waste. Um, but that's a different conversation than should be happening when we're going to raise the debt ceiling, because this is where we are going to, to pay our bills. Um, you know, and, and honestly, this is what President Biden put in his budget back in March. And Republicans have yet to even release a budget. Um, so there would have been a way to come together sooner. Um, but, you know, the Republicans' play um, was a non-starter. And, um, and it was a non-starter uh, because the poison in the bill cut veteran benefits and so many other things that people rely on. Congressman Eric Sorensen. More Week in Review coming up. Welcome back to Week in Review. I'm Will Stevenson in the WMBD Radio Newsroom. An important part of the Peoria area's history is about to get some recognition, thanks in part to a project spearheaded by students at Pekin High School. The students recently studied the life of the first slave emancipated by President Abraham Lincoln, Nance Leggins Costley. That's led to a monument of Costley being dedicated during the Tazewell County Juneteenth celebration, June 17th in Pekin. My name is John Ackerman. I'm the Tazewell County Clerk. I'm proud to be here today hosting this joint press conference with my dear friend, uh, Mayor of City of Pekin, Mary Burris. Um, you know, I do want to say at the beginning, there is some uh, commentary in the community that Tazewell County and the city of Pekin are not getting along right now. I can tell you for certain my good friend and I uh, get along quite well and that uh, we have a very good yes, communication process. Yes, so um, any community comments about us not getting along, I don't know where those would be coming from, but I can tell you that that Mary has been nothing but very open and uh, accommodating. And uh, Thank you. Yes. we have a great history. Look forward to a long one to, uh, to come. For today's event, what we're here today to recognize is Pekin High School's curriculum this year focused in on Nance uh, Leggins Costley, who was the first slave uh, emancipated by Abraham Lincoln. Um, worldwide, the first individual emancipated by Abraham Lincoln. Uh, it's quite a historical figure and one that has been a bit forgotten here locally. She lived her life here in Pekin. Um, when we knew that we were going to do a dedication this year on Juneteenth of her life, uh, put a new stone monument in place and bring rec community recognition, we threw the idea to the high school of is there something that the students would like to contribute to this project? Is there a way for the students to be involved? Um, my friend Colleen Call um, took the phone call and took the challenge. Um, she said, oh, I've got some ideas. Give me some time. And that was, I think, September. Um, so it was the beginning of the school year. Uh, last week, uh, or maybe the week before, she sends me the final link and goes, well, here's what we did. And I, I can't tell you how emotional it was to open that up and see everything that the students produced. Um, the quality and the quantity of work that they produced 
is just overwhelming. Um, to go from a simple request, nothing really, uh, I, if you'd given us a couple pieces of artwork, I would have been happy with that. Uh, it just blows away the amount. And that's when we realized we just can't have this as part of Juneteenth. It has to be a standalone event where we recognize the high school for what they've achieved, not just the students, but the staff, for bringing something like this forward. Hopefully this is a model for other local schools of how our local history can be put into the curriculum. I know schools are stressed right now with a lot of requirements from the state and from the feds of what needs to be taught. Local history does as well and this is a prime example of what can be accomplished with it. I'm going to turn it over to my friend Mary Burris here in a minute but I just wanted to read and the website is now publicly available for everybody to see. You'll be able to look at about 30 pieces of artwork, four or five pieces of poetry, testimonials, a video biography that the students have put together, it just keeps coming in waves, the, the amount of work and the quality of work that the students did. I pulled myself a couple of the testimonials I wanted to share. She shows a fighting spirit, always standing up for what is right, no matter how long it takes. Without her, Abe Lincoln probably wouldn't have been so adamant on ending slavery. I plan on carrying on Nancy's legacy by speaking up against what is wrong, no matter how long it takes for things to change. Another student. Leggins Costley is an exemplary example of what the citizens of America should be. If something goes wrong, change it. If that doesn't work, try again until it does. She was and remains to be a source of inspiration for those looking to make a difference. All they need to do is to embrace their convictions, as she did. Another one. Nance's story shows no matter who you are and where you come from, you should always fight for what you believe in. Yet another, the bravery that Nance had to stand up for herself gave many others the same opportunity. She taught society to stick up for themselves and fight for freedom. One final one. Being the first freed slave by, a by Lincoln aside, her bravery and determination alone was admirable. But fighting in court as many times as she had, while being black and female, and getting denied almost every time, but still having the bravery to do it all over again, deserves far more recognition than she received. And I think Pekin should be far more proud to have a woman like this to come from our town. I can't say it better. Um, their work and again their accomplishment speaks for itself. We just want to be here today to recognize the school for its accomplishment and encourage other schools to follow the example the Pekin High School has laid out here. With that, I'll turn it over to my friend Mary Burris. Well, first of all, I do want to thank each and every one of you for being here, um, but I want to thank John Ackerman for inviting um, myself to say a few words. You know, when I first um, saw the, um, the artwork and the poetry, um, I was just amazed. Um, it's it's beyond words. It's it's almost speechless. It just it makes you it humbles you um, to think that high school students um, are already doing their work to unite our community. Um, their talent is uh, second to none. It is top notch. So um, if we see what they can do on their web page as high school students. Think of what they'll be as leaders in our community. They will be amazing for us. 
um, taking over for some of the leaders that we have. I also want to thank the staff for, you know, letting them shine. That is exactly what you let them do. Um, and that shows good leadership in you um, to let them shine. You know, um, with, uh, with good leadership also comes um, just to unify people and to work together. When I first said I was going to run for mayor, I kept saying my number one goal is to unify this city. We're so divided. We have got to be one. Um, and as in my first term, if I can accomplish that, that is my measure of success. I, I think the high school is already showing that, and I, as your mayor, would like to do the same. So Nance Leggins Costley showed hope, bravery, strength. The high school students have taken that. They have shown that her triumph um, was just that, hope for every one of us. So um, that is what I am looking forward to, the city of Pekin. The city of Pekin, as our young pastor, Heather Robinson says, is the city of us, and that is hope. So thank you very much. Hi, my name is Colin Call, and I teach here at Pekin High School. And last September, um, John Ackerman gave me a phone call. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with him as an election judge and a voting registrar, and, so, and then he's spoken to a government class. So when he reached out in September, I didn't hesitate. Um, I have a hard time saying no. Everyone here at Pekin High knows that anyway. And I didn't hesitate, and I immediately um, grabbed onto this idea and thought right away of all the amazing things and how we could come together because the school is so amazing with the opportunities that they give to kids. And I'm proud of that every single day. And so immediately I went to my department chair, I went to the English department chair, and I'm like, here's what we can do. And I started reaching out to individual teachers, and they all said yes. They also have a hard time saying no. <laughs> so, and the most inspiring thing, honestly, is when presenting this story to the students, I didn't even know this story. So I immediately bought the book um, and shared the USA Today article and then all the other sources that we found. And these kids, time after time, are like, why don't we know about this? Why don't we know about her? And every one of them read her story and were like, yeah, yeah, this is a teenager who fought for her convictions and her beliefs and her rights. We can do that too. And that's the kind of thing that I hope every one of us educators inspire in these students. But more importantly, they inspire in everybody else because this is their talent, this is their skills, and these are their words. So the stone monument that we're discussing, that which all of this was generated from, will be dedicated on June the 17th at 10 o'clock in the 400 block of uh, Court Street in downtown Pekin. It'll be the first ever uh, marker of any type about the life of uh, Nance Costley, a permanent marker. Um, Peoria is also installing state historical markers about her, and so will we be in Tazewell County uh, unveiled that same day. Um, this is an opportunity for the public to come out and participate in this historic event. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD Radio News.